I went through a philosophy degree in uh, undergraduate in um, University of Utah and uh, went into medical school and kind of throughout philosophy I was introduced to arguments against the existence of God or, or counter arguments for the existence of God. And uh, my faith kind of weakened through, and then the constant calls or evidence through uh, medical school and residency, uh, that was kind of it for me. I couldn't really shore up any evidence to defend my faith, so I became an atheist. And Leighton, um, tell us a, a little bit about your background. All right. Uh, well, mine and Charlie's background kind of parallel one another. In fact, uh, it was uh, my father that was part of the council that excommunicated Charlie's family. Uh, growing up, I uh, was very religious. About the age of 19, I prayed about whether or not I should go on an LDS mission, and right after what I got, I, what I thought was my answer, I learned that I was just highly anemic and I wasn't of blood at the local blood bank. Uh, due to that, that put cracks in everything. Uh, I began to travel the world, see different views, see different things from other people's eyes, and uh, joined the military, came back to Utah, and... Uh, due to Charlie and I, both of us coming to our lack of belief in our separate ways, uh, we kind of got together and uh, decided to uh, run a podcast on it. All right, great. Um, Mike was talking about the how there's this uh, matter-antimatter or mirror image thing going on. Uh, yeah, what a, hi guys, uh, Mike Larrakis, uh, I'm an internist, uh, so Charlie and I have a little bit of a common parallel there um yeah there's a lot of parallels actually yeah um yeah if you were to take um uh, a episode of star trek where leighton and i were uh transported and there was an accident the evil guys with goatees would be you guys oh okay <laughs> all right we were thinking just the opposite but that's I'm fine i'm trying to figure out who determines who's the light side and who's the dark side that's right that's right so um so it's not just that one's a physician um, and one, I guess you would call, have to call the layman. Um, but we also, we started about two years ago, right? Your, you guys' podcast has been on for about two years. Is that right? Yeah, January 2009 is when we started. Okay, and we started the end of uh, 08. Yeah, so, September of 08. Yeah. So uh, it is kind of funny. And then I guess we have a mutual listener, and that's how we were uh, connected up and eventually uh, made it to today. Is right, that um, I actually heard from a couple of different people. Okay. One was a theist who listens to your show, and then uh, to get the other side, I guess they listened to our show and came on the forum, and we had a little debate, and uh, and then a bunch of other people, I guess, uh, listened to your podcast and wanted us to talk to you. Okay. Well, we've noticed that we have uh, received a lot more hits as time goes by, we keep getting a lot more downloads, so maybe it may be the contact that we're having. We might be getting um, uh, similar audiences pulling from each other. Well, let's for those who are not familiar with you, um, uh, you gave us a little bit of background that you came out of Mormonism. Um, so I'm curious, you know, we don't really talk about other religions on the show very much. And so we don't go specifically into things like Mormonism, but of course I've done some reading on it, and I, I, ha I am very interested when I get a chance to talk to Mormons or former Mormons about it. And uh, so can you just uh, step us through a little bit about, um, you know, more specifically why you left Mormonism? I think, um, Charlie, you did mention a little bit about why you left Mormonism, but give us a little more on that. You mean just because it's a crock isn't good enough? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's one of the easiest religions, I think, to see that is false. Once you step outside of the religion itself, uh, John Lofton calls it the outsider test for faith. Once you drop those goggles where you don't automatically accept everything uh, is true, and you begin rereading the documents and rereading the history, and things start to crumble. Right. Um, uh, Joseph read, Smith, yeah. you know, made a bunch of prophecies, and, and a lot of them didn't come true. His story about the golden plates doesn't stand up under scrutiny. There are multiple uh, problems with the first vision, the whole polygamy story, all of it. It's. Uh, I mean, even look at uh, Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Abraham. Yeah. We actually have the papyrus that he translated, and it is absolutely nothing compared to what he said. So he's completely wrong in that account as well. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you about that specifically, because in my view— uh, and, I, you know, I have a few Mormon friends that I've 
had a chance to talk to. But in my view, that to me is the strongest evidence that Joseph Smith was really just a con man. Um, so what do you think is the, if you were going to pick one evidence that Mormonism was false, what do you think would be the strongest thing? The book of Abraham was the nail in the coffin for me. What started it for me was that Brigham Young taught that Adam was our God and Savior and the uh, father of Jesus, that he came down and uh, had relations with Mary and Father Jesus on the earth, and that's the only way you can have reproduction, so that's why he had to do it. Now, the current church has turned around, and they uh, dispute that, and they said that, uh, first of all, he was misquoted. They found out that wasn't the case, and it it comes down to uh, is... Is Brigham Young right, in which case the current church is wrong, or is the current church right? And that means Brigham Young was wrong, but they derive their priestly power directly through Brigham Young. So either way you do it, uh, the church has to fall. Well, and I mean, uh, another great one, which most people don't even know because the LDS Church puts a great spin on it, is how Joseph Smith actually translated the Golden Plates. Now, if you go into any LDS Church, you'll see Joseph Smith sitting there in in a nice suit with a quill pen, the golden plates next to him, uh, a few other various items, and he just looks very scholarly. If you actually look into the history, and the church itself admits this, the history of it is, is Joseph Smith found two stones, which he named the Urim and Thummim, while he was digging a well. These are the same stones that he uh, was allegedly using to find gold, Uh. and they're the same stones that he used to put into a hat, put his face into the hat, and that's how he translated the book or the uh, golden plates was by sticking his face in his hat. Okay. Now, you know, there was something that I read maybe 20 years ago that I thought was very authoritative. It seemed to be well documented, but since then I really haven't heard about it and and I've tried looking for it online and really haven't come across it. Maybe you guys have heard of it. It was this explanation as to how Joseph Smith was able to come up with the actual Book of Mormon. And it involved this theory that there was an author in the Midwest who used to write uh, religious um, uh, texts similar to the Book of Mormon, and that one of the people who was a, who came to the New York area, I guess it was, when Joseph Smith started things, uh, had actually worked at the printers and had brought had stolen this manuscript and brought it and met Joseph Smith, and this is where they got the the idea to uh, come up with the Book of Mormon. Is that ringing any bells? Yeah, do a Google search on Solomon Spaulding. It was his manuscript, ah, Manuscript okay. Found. Um, now that, they actually found Manuscript Found, and it has some similarities, but it's not a whole lot. But apparently he wrote a different manuscript. What happened was they send missionaries out. Mormons, even in the early days, sent missionaries out. It was about 20 years later, uh, maybe 1850, in the New York area, and they were saying about how, you know, all oh, this group of uh, Hebrews led by Lehi and Nephi and, um, you know, the enemies were Laman and Lemuel. And all these names started saying, hey, wait a second, I, I read that from Solomon Spaulding. Hmm. Um, now, the manuscript that they're talking about, because they, they knew the names exactly had been written down. The manuscript they're talking about hasn't been found. Uh, but Signe Rigdon who later became one of the counselors of Joseph Smith, worked at the printing agency. Uh, okay, see. Uh, right. And then uh, Solomon Spaulding died. No one knows what happened to that manuscript. Gotcha. And there's actually quite a bit of research into, uh, well, you know, just the way people speak, grammar, that sort of thing. And they've done research on the Book of Mormon, and they're coming to find out that Joseph Smith actually had very little to do with the the writing of it, that it was actually the counselors and the people that he surrounded themselves with, that their writing styles and their behaviors far closer match what is in the Book of Mormon than Joseph Smith himself. You're talking about word print analysis. When you when you take a word print analysis of the Book of Mormon, um, a lot of the stuff falls into Sidney Rigdon. Um, some of it falls into Solomon Spaulding. What you do is you take stuff that, that, that these guys have written and uh, unusual phrases that crop up that, that don't crop up in many other places. Mm. And so a lot of it's done by either Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, very little on Joseph Smith, and Solomon Spaulding comes up as well. Great. All right. Well, one of the uh, problems that missionaries, you know, Christian missionaries who are trying to reach into the Mormon faith have is that they find that when they present some of this information to Mormons, a lot of times 
instead of becoming Christians, they wind up doing like you two guys did and becoming atheists. So there's actually a lot of concern amongst Christian missionaries as to um, this problem of creating atheists by uh, explaining the the false nature of Mormonism. Now, well, wait it, a second. It, You'd rather have Mormons than atheists? <laughs> yeah, it, it's not that they'd rather... Yeah, it's just, you know, this is um, not a what do we do. This is a kind of, gosh, we have to be careful because... Um, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire. So well, you guys don't it's think too far of a leap. I mean, <laughs> right. if you've if you've been raised in this religion, raised that this is the one true religion, suddenly right. you find that the LDS Church and authorities at large are hiding things from you. It starts the wheels in your head, and you start questioning everything around right. you. You right. definitely become skeptical, and right. that skepticism, I think. Uh, leads inevitably to atheism. You start questioning all the claims of, of religion, start looking into it yourself. You've been hoodwinked your entire life, right? right? So right. not, not going to happen again. Yeah, I actually, uh, I don't know if you know, if you've listened to any of the podcasts where I've talked about my background, I actually had a similar experience of feeling that I had been hoodwinked and lied to, and and I was so embarrassed about it that I kept, you know, I was very skeptical, um, but since I was an agnostic uh, atheist already, and I, be, I became even more skeptical after uh, starting to believe in UFOs and then realizing that it was a bunch of hooey, uh, and that actually led me to uh, examine the evidence very carefully that God existed, and then I, that's when I changed and became a theist. So again, we've got that opposite mirror image matter antimatter thing going on. So you guys, Forgive me for asking for clarification. Sure. You're saying that as an agnostic atheist, you were well into the UFO movement. I'm telling you, yeah, I was. Uh, you know, I I read uh, probably seven books. Uh, I just was, you know, in high school. I started reading about UFOs, and I thought, oh, this is really cool. And somebody gave me some for a birthday present, or I think it was. Do you remember? Are you guys old enough to know about Chariots of the Gods? No. Eric Von no. Donegan. Yeah. No, okay, you guys are young, I guess. No. Mike and I are the old ones. So, um, so, anyways, it's a whole series. It's like a three-volume set about all the evidence that that we were visited in the in the ancient past by uh, UFOs, and that's how we get you know the things like the pyramids and all this stuff. And it explains oh, all the religions of the world because they actually came from the aliens. And you know, so I was reading all this stuff, and I became quite the evangelist. Uh, you know, I was trying to convince my parents, I was trying to convince my friends and my family members. And you guys got to believe in UFOs, and here's all the evidence. And, and, you know, when you get past about seven books, you know, you, you learn all of the evidences, all the photographs, all the kidnapping victims, and all the uh, landing sites and locations and all that. And then I got, I made the mistake of taking the next book in line in the library home with me. I checked it out and took it home and didn't realize that it was uh, written by one of these uh, Project Blue Book Air Force officers about, uh, you know, the evidence for uh, UFOs. And he went through every single evidence, and I knew them all. And he explained why they were faked or misinterpreted or, you know, just a lot of imagination. And uh, I was so embarrassed. I was I was really mortified. Uh, and I just kind of swore to myself that I would never, ever get fooled like that again that I would always carefully investigate things, always be open to somebody who tells me that, you know, what you're thinking isn't true, here's, uh, you know, another way to look at it, here's more evidence. Um, and, you know, that led me down the path uh, to Christianity, and uh, so here I am. That was about 30 years ago. That really bit you, didn't it? <laughs> What's that? I said that whole fool you twice a day has really bit you, hasn't it? I know, uh, yeah, we're, I'm kind of thinking the same thing, but... So, so you guys now believe that God does not exist, is that right? We, our claim is that God is unproven. Not that he's been disproven, or not that he necessarily absolutely does not exist, but that he's unproven. None of the arguments, none of the evidences uh, have proven his existence. Therefore, I don't believe in a God. Now, atheism, if you break it up in the original Greek, is A, without, theism, belief in God. So atheists are merely without a belief in God. Um, 
the biggest that... problem I've always had between theists and, uh, well, we'll even say scientists, is scientists, they gather data and then they form a hypothesis around the data, whereas you get a theist, he has the hypothesis in front of him and he cherry-picks from everything around him in order to find the data that, that will support his claim. Now, that's, Layton, that, big... that's called a naked assertion. So without providing evidence for that, you can't really assert that on I, the show. I would be happy to grant that for some people. Uh, I, I meet okay. plenty of people who do that on both sides of the camp. So, so, uh, so well, then how, how would you classify yourselves? Would you classify yourselves as naturalists, uh, materialists, physicalists? How would you? Sure. Uh, if you're talking philosophically, um, all, all that exists really is, is the natural world. Matter and energy. Matter and energy. And that would, um, you got to be careful when you talk about science. Uh, That is a philosophical naturalism. And that, for me, is based on uh, the lack of evidence for a a supernatural world, being, or existence. Uh, Science has a methodological naturalism where they say, look, you can't admit any supernatural uh, causes because we can't uh, test them unless they interact with the natural world and then their interaction will be natural. So there's a difference between philosophical and methodological naturalism. Agree. Okay. So, but basically, then it would be accurate to say um, that there's no God, there are no spirits, there are no ghosts, uh, no demons, no souls. Too. No, there's no soul in you other than your brain, um, and and no free will. Would that I think it would be probably safer to say that there has been, as of yet, absolutely no evidence that has come forth for those assertions. Well, I would say that there's no good evidence. I'd say yeah. that um, well, in, the absence, in the absence of good evidence or good reasons to believe, uh, then uh, the default position for any proposition is disbelief. You talk about Bertrand Russell's teapot, the flying spaghetti monster, Zeus, Thor, Quetzalcoatl. Or a used car, you, you know, I would say, if you're going to sell me in the used car, give me some evidence, otherwise I'm not going to believe your claims. Right, okay. Well, I would have traditionally pinned that to, uh, at least seemed to me, it was always called agnosticism. When you didn't know one way or the other, you know, there was a strong agnosticism that said that you could not know. That was actually my view, was that it was impossible to know about spiritual things, because we live in a physical world, uh, everything is, you know, space, matter, and time, energy, and we can't know about those things. They are otherworldly, they're out there, and, uh, you know, none of those things can be known. So I was a strong agnostic, and then, you know, there's the weak agnostic who just says, okay, uh, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but I don't have any reason to know. Um, But, you know, I've always interpreted atheism as... um, you know, that there is no God. I, th- I Because there's no evidence or um, because everything else looks false, I believe that there is no God. Yeah, don't conflate the two. One is a belief proposition, atheism, without belief in God. The other one is a knowledge proposition, a gnosis, without knowledge. Um, those are two different propositions. You can be an agnostic atheist. You can be an agnostic Christian. You can, right. uh, you know, if you just, just because you don't know doesn't mean you can't believe. You can say, look, I agree with the position of agnosticism. I cannot know uh, spiritual things. I have no access, no way to access spiritual knowledge. Uh, so therefore, I don't know. However, I still believe. I'm saying I would, I would be an agnostic atheist. Yes, I agree that I, I don't know, uh, and, and, and probably that you can't know. Uh, but as an atheist, I would say because there is no good evidence, or I've seen no good evidence, I do not believe until such time as someone presents good evidence for me. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. Guys, I, I got a question for you since um, I think Charlie and I have a little bit more of a science background. I want to jump in on, on that uh, item. Um, and it has to do with scientific method. Obviously, we were schooled in scientific method uh, going back to uh, the college years, med school years, and so forth. But if I can define, I think, science just for the listening audience, uh, I'd like to do it uh, in this way because I... Uh, Uh, Bear with me because I I have a point I do want to make at the end of this. Science, by definition, I think we can all agree on this, is a human enterprise where we seek to describe accurately and quantitatively the nature and processes of the universe. Okay, we do this through observation and hypothesis and then uh, validation through experimentation. Is that a fair um, definition of the scientific method? 
Sure. The different uh, sciences, um, uh, you have historical sciences where that are not subject to experimentation, such as cosmology. Um, you can uh, hypothesize and then, you know, put things in particle accelerators and try to uh, look at and see what happened. You obviously can't recreate the Big Bang, but you can put your theory, you can model reality and see how well your theory matches up with, as, as you can test it, reality. Okay, good. I'm, and I'm just trying to make this as general as I can from a uh, biology, physics, chemistry kind of a perspective, the stuff that we, sure. were, we were trained in. Uh, but, you know, one, one of the things that uh, always caught my eye was that uh, science itself depends on a little bit of faith in that uh, there's an axiom that, uh, you know, the universe and, and all of our scientific observations usually occur in an orderly fashion. And hence the, the mathematic formulas and so forth that we have in physics and so forth. You know, whether it's gravity or some other um, concept that we can uh, nail down with um, mathematical terminology. Um, likewise, a major corollary, corollary there is uh, the law of causality, okay? That's a law. It's a physical law of the universe that no effect can be uh, quantitatively greater or qualitatively superior than the cause. So that gets us back to the beginning and the cause of the universe. Now, you mentioned the Big Bang, Charlie. How do you come to the conclusion that uh, we got here out of nothing, well, that's actually a very interesting question because uh, Stephen Hawking, one of the greatest uh, scientists of our time, one of the greatest physicists of our time, uh, at the end of his book, Grand Design, says that, of course, nothing uh, or something can be created from nothing, uh, and that happens with gravity. Gravity is negative energy. Mass and energy are positive energy. If you start from a zero state, you uh, can have quantum fluctuations from a larger cosmos, and again, this is M-theory. I don't pretend to understand this. Stephen Hawking um, may not understand all of it. Uh, but if you have a, a quantum state from a larger cosmos erupting uh, through inflation and coming into our uh, existence, you can have a state of an existence with a universe that has exactly balanced out the energy from negative energy with gravity and positive energy with all the matter and energy. And apparently that can happen all the time according to these equations. We may be one out of trillions, hundreds of trillions of universes, uh, all with different initial starting points. Some of them can support life, some of them can't. Okay. This is, uh, again, this is, this is physics. Again, I can't, I'm not a physicist, so I have to rely on Stephen Hawking and, and other physicists who tell me about uh, M-theory, the one category, the, the one possible uh, unified theory that unifies quantum mechanics and gravitation, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, did, did you get a chance to read uh, The Grand Design? I did. Okay, did, did, I'm told, I haven't read it, uh, you know, I, I try to just keep up on, on journal articles and things, so um, I have a stack of books that I'd love to read, one of them would be that, but I'm told that he, uh, one of the claims in the book is that he says, philosophy is dead. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I yeah. Have a, yeah, Leighton, a Leighton that's good for you, right? Charlie's time. out of a job. <laughs> oh, I'm real happy about that. Then. <laughs> that one hurt. <laughs> that yeah. one hurt. But I think he's, he's probably right. For for uh, the most part, science has taken over the the typical um, domain of philosophy. You know, it used to be no one was a scientist. They were natural philosophers. They would philosophize about nature. Right. The one, the Enlightenment. Uh, where we got the scientific method from, where we cast off our belief that, that Aristotle is authoritative and we just accept it. We start questioning everything. Uh, the Enlightenment um, provides, uh, in the form of Hume, for example, a philosopher who says, look, we can, we can philosophize all you want, but we've got to match our philosophies against reality to see if they're correct. You can have an internally consistent philosophy and it will be wrong. You have to right. match it up, see that's, if you're right. Right, that's true, but uh, I, I think one of the things you have to do is not let uh, cosmologists play philosopher. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, philosophy is dead. I think um, that is almost a self-refuting statement. Uh, you know, it's contradictory. Um, I think Hawking is just not a good philosopher. He might be a terrific cosmologist or mathematician or whatever, but, um, uh, you know, philosophy isn't dead. Um, so you've still got uh, your job 
uh, Charlie. But um, well, philosophy is never going to die because everybody's always going to be sitting around contemplating. Well, what if? Uh, no matter how many unknowns we discover, someone is always going to find another unknown and say, "Well, we don't know about that. Let's think about it for a while." Yeah, but what's the domain? Philosophy now has pretty much been relegated to ethics, maybe epistemology. They can uh, they can criticize science maybe for their methods and question them, like the inductive problem, for example. Sure, that's a philosophical problem. That's not a, a scientific problem. Well, every but, base. Uh, you know, every base question of every field is a philosophical question, epistemology, ontology. It all goes back to um, philosophy, uh, you know, and I don't know if you know, but uh, Time magazine uh, wrote that there's quite a revolution in the world of philosophers with theism. Theism is very, since the late 1960s, theism has been coming strong um, in the world of academic philosophy. Uh, I was at a conference uh, two weeks ago where I sat next to Alvin Plantinga. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he started in the 19, late 1960s when uh, logical positivism uh, ruled the day. And uh, if you remember from your uh, background in philosophy, that was the view that if, unless something's scientific, you can't know it. You can't know anything about it. And so any talk of metaphysics was essentially irrational. And that was the reigning paradigm at the time. And he and some other incredibly bright uh, philosophers have completely turned that around. Now the, the reigning philosophy among uh, non-theists non and theists is analytical philosophy, which has completely revolutionized uh, Almost every argument for the existence of God, the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, uh, all the way down. So, uh, you know, uh, big things are happening in the academic world of, of philosophy, uh, and it's, all, it's leaning towards theism. Well, do you oh, think sure. that's because science has been slapping down every superstition, and so they have to go to someplace they can find? I mean, take a look at, uh, at the flood story. Uh, for a long time, I actually had it thrown in my face where uh, I was told that the rainbow was put there because God was promising that he wasn't going to flood the world again. And so my question to them was, are you telling me that if you shine light through a prism pre-flood that you wouldn't get the rainbow effect and it's only post-flood? So is it that uh, because of these superstitions are being slapped down by science that other avenues have to be found in order to support one's belief. In other words, uh, science's job is really to, to find out what reality is, right? So we find out all this stuff. Like, at first, God was on a mountain in Olympus and or Sinai, and you know we, we climb up there and we find out he's not there. So he has to be in the clouds. Well, we fly up there, we find out that God's not there either. So now the philosophers are they're getting hit by science right and left, and, and they're honing their arguments to remove God from testability. That's a survival so you, instinct. Once you, right, once you define God so that he's outside of space and time, good luck finding him with science. Right. That well, is a philosophical endeavor. That's not a scientific endeavor, but it seems like a reaction to me to science. Plantinga resurrected, I think, what is one of the worst uh, arguments for the existence of God, the ontological argument with modal logic in his S5 theorem. Um, but I don't think uh, he did a much better job because you can always reverse that uh, with uh, – it's the exact same argument. If you say God, it is possible that God does not exist. Therefore, God does not exist. So I haven't seen him refute that particular reversal of his S5 modal theory. Well, of the different uh, – I, you know, I know that uh, you're very familiar with the many different arguments for the existence of God, and uh, but I guess – I have a question of, instead of kind of uh, negative evidence or, you know, um, just uh, complaining about the evidences that are presented for the existence of God, do you have any positive evidence on your side? Do you have any positive evidence that God does not exist? Or is it totally uh, criticism of, of the uh, philosophers? Well, that's well, I, one I misunderstanding. Isn't it uh, the job of the one making the claim to put forth the evidence? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the um, burden of proof is on the shoulders of one who makes the positive claim. I don't know of any evidence. Um, I suppose you could get into uh, the existence of evil um, as a, as a counter-argument for the existence of God. But the problem with the, the 
argument from suffering or, or evil is that you bring it up and, and people who believe, and, and I was one of them, right? There's this little, you know yourself that, that you don't know everything. You're limited. And so there's this little gray area, this dead zone that you think that even if I can't argue the existence of evil, there must be some answer because I know God exists. So that doesn't really bother me. Atheists think that it's indisputable, <laughs> this argument from evil, because there's no answer to it. Uh, free will doesn't really save you from natural evil. Any of the uh, theodicies that are, that are listed, when you look at it, it, it carefully, critically examine it, it, it kind of fails to absolve God. It was, you know, the, if you guys are Zoroastrians and you have an equally powerful God and equally powerful you know, good God and bad God, then you get the good God off the hook. But the omnipotent God of, of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam uh, kind of is on the hook for the argument of evil. But uh, I, I suppose if you want positive evidence, I suppose we could talk about the argument from evil. You guys have done a lot of podcasts on that. Yeah, we've well, done. Also, Charlie, you bring up a very good point about how uh, when somebody brings these to you, you automatically just your eyes glaze over and you don't pay attention. And it, it reminds me of the study that was done that, that showed that atheists and agnostics know more about uh, religion and the Bible than most Christians and religious people do. Yeah, that's I, an interesting study. You guys want to talk about that? Or you want to talk about the problem of evil? Uh, no, you know, briefly we can go over that. I think that's interesting too. Um, you know, there was uh, general knowledge about different uh, religions, so uh, Christians were not so good uh, knowing about things like uh, Islam and um, uh, Judaism, and whereas atheists and agnostics tended to know more about a broad range of of uh, religions. Although I think the uh, Protestants did pretty well on their own religion, if I'm not mistaken. It's been, what, it's been a couple of months that that came out. Yeah, well, the the sad thing is even the Mormons beat out most Christians. Oh, did they? (laughs) It went atheists, Jews, Mormons, and then evangelical Protestants and Catholics were underneath that. Right. But But also, did you notice it it was strongly uh, tilted towards education level, too? Yes, so, it definitely um, varied on your education, and as you know, as education goes up, atheism goes up as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But but is that cause and effect? Is that because the atheist stronghold is in the realm of academics? Um, well, there's so. a there's a correlation, but you have to, to split out uh, for the sciences. It's definitely cause and effect for biology, for example. It reverses the general trend: is 10% of the population uh, don't believe in God, and 90% do. If you look at the biology PhDs, that's exactly inverted: 90% don't believe in God, 10% do. Other PhDs, I think it varies. You know, engineers uh, tend to be fairly religious, and computer programmers, I think, they have a high instance of, of religiosity. Well, that's because engineers, uh, I mean, uh, you guys uh, pointed out that I am in uh, multimedia. That was one of the things that I have under my belt, but I'm also trained in electronics, and I'm currently going for an electromechanical engineering degree. And one thing you find in any sort of uh, span of that sort of science is that the only thing they cover, really, is what you need to know about the engineering. They never really go into deeper depths on uh, the deeper physics sides of things. And so uh, this is why I see such a, such a high rate of uh, theism within those particular sciences, whereas you have archaeologists and historians where it's the same sort of flux, where it almost reverses. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we have two visiting atheists from Utah, uh, Charlie and Layton, who are uh, giving us a a very good um, debate discussion here about the evidences for and against God. So I guess we've got um, 15 minutes plus, and uh, so maybe we can get a little more in-depth into uh, some of the evidences. We wanted to kind of stick to theism uh, today, but um, a lot of the evidences, you know, there's a lot of evidences out there that Christianity is true. Uh, That's, I mean, that's the point of our radio show. Um, And specifically that God exists, argument from reason, there's an argument from knowledge, from morals, uh, for existence, um, there's the 
beginning of the universe that Mike brought up, um, the universe being fine-tuned for life, the sudden appearance of life, the sudden appearance of multicellular life, sudden appearance of complex body plans, sudden appearance of sexual reproduction, uh, irreducibly complex machinery in the cell, complex specified information, um, and, and then, you know, many, many other things, genetic redundancy, variation-inducing genetic elements that show that life was designed to adapt, um, you know, program death of organisms that simply doesn't fit, fit the uh, evolutionary construct. Um, and then, you know, things that fit more in line with Christianity, near-death experiences and PET scanners that show the existence of a soul, uh, many fulfilled prophecies written hundreds of years before the actual events occurred, and uh, the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible. And uh, so that's what this show is about, but we are going to stick to evidences for theology. So, Well, let me just butt in there and say sure. that I am so happy that you didn't throw out the second law of thermodynamics. Nope. I've heard that thing <laughs> misquoted so many times that it's almost irritating every time it's brought up, just because those who bring it up don't understand it. So uh, well, that's all what. I want to say. I was just <laughs> actually listening this morning to your podcast where you were you were uh, discussing that uh, <laughs> that very notion about the... But I'm not sure, uh, you know, it's not something that I use, and it's partly because of the great amount of confusion about it, um, and because there does seem to be an easy response uh, that... that th- uh, non-theists can give, but um, I would challenge you that uh, you, you're you actually misrepresenting what the argument is, because, um, well, who wants to who wants to give the argument? One of you guys, or Mike, you want to explain what the argument is from second, second Law of Thermodynamics? Well, the Second Law of Thermodynamics states that uh, the amount of energy and um, matter in the universe stays constant. That it can't be created or destroyed. That's the first law. Second law has to do with entropy, in that uh, you go from a higher state of order down to a lower state of order. Okay, so that's uh, basically it. Yeah, it seems to argue against some kind of evolutionary, even you know, kind of a big bang thing where everything's getting more and more um, orderly. Well, so, so then go the, ahead and the give the standard argument against that. Well, then. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say the biggest confusion between that is that the second law of thermodynamics deals with a closed system. Correct. Whereas the Earth in and of itself is not closed. We are constantly bombarded by the sun, by cosmic rays, by uh, who knows whatever else. Right. So it, 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 it has absolutely nothing to do with refuting evolution because it deals with a closed system and the fact that in a closed system, things become more chaotic, not more ordered. Whereas well, let's... let's- Let's be clear that the second law of thermodynamics it has to do with uh, heat exchange and temperature exchange. Mm-hmm. And really, you're taking it metaphorically uh, to then put it into order and chaos, right? I mean, colloquially, we'll say that uh, you know, as as a system tends to more toward more heat, and you can't heat's not a usable form of energy, right? It's uh, that delta S that causes entropy. That's heat exchange. Um, so you, it really doesn't have anything to do with order, orderly or disorderly systems except by proxy. Uh, but here's one clue that you know that you need that open system, that energy pouring into the sun, and that's how you get localized pockets of order, right? What happens to the, to the earth if that sun goes out? Are we still going to be alive? Okay, but... Any of us? No. Right, right. No. But, okay, but just the sun pouring energy to the earth now for one thing i can say well the solar system is a closed system okay but but that's kind of uh, neither here still nor not there entirely because you still got gravitational effects from other uh, solar systems in the milky way and other galaxies how that uh, so the how universe that impacts, entirely would be a closed system yes that's true and 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 so that's why i think that that that's not all that important but but one of the very important things uh, is that just because energy is pouring into a system does not mean that you're going to get uh, higher levels of complexity. Um, for instance, you know, I'm sure you know as a physician, the more that people stay out in the sunshine, actually the more disordered they get. Um, you know, if we, if we thought that that was true, we would carry, um, you know, lumps of uranium around in our pockets because it's pouring out energy. 
uh, and we would therefore you know, somehow improve and get into a higher state of order. Well, actually, the reverse is what happens. When you have energy pouring into a system such as solar energy, it's actually doing an incredible amount of damage to the ordered systems that are here on the Earth, things like life. If you want to uh, take things from the soil, minerals, nutrients, water, uh, carbon dioxide from the air, and build a living structure, you have to have much more than just energy being poured into the system. You've got to have a blueprint plan, and you've got to have a way of converting that energy into something useful. So that's how you build ordered systems, by a mechanism that's already set up, ready to convert energy into complicated things like plants and animals. That's where the second law of thermodynamics comes in and shows that uh, evolution is not uh, runs counter if it's just running uh, without any blueprint, without any plan, without any mechanism to do that. And so you, do you do a, so life is a non-starter. The solar the, the solar radiation is destroying any possible life that could come up before it can become replicating. Uh, now, now you're talking about abiogenesis. You're talking True. about the creation of life from lifelessness. Right. Because um, given life, then you can violate the second law of, of thermodynamics because order will then, you know, you, you're, you're drawing energy out of the system. You become more complex as you grow older or taller or whatever, bigger. And then eventually entropy catches up with you. You get older and older and start to fall apart and cancer uh, you know, it just catches up with you. So there's only this temporary flux, but it requires all this mechanism to be in place and the blueprints so, for how to do it. So we agree that given energy, you can have increasing complexity given life. We all agree that, right? Once you've got so life, real, once you've got life, you can do it. So the real question is, how do you go from non-living to living, right? That is, is that right? How do we get that first cell? And also the claim is is that there's a, a blueprint before you even start, which of course means that you have a builder. Well, that that's we can discuss completely that. different yeah. art. Well, see, yes. yeah, we're at, we're actually way down. By the time you get to the origin of life, you're way down the um, you know like math problem. You're at the already the fifteenth step in this this math problem. I think the mistake you guys are making is right at the beginning, at step number one: Does God exist or not? Uh, you know, the Kalam cosmological argument is a deductive argument. It's not an inductive argument. It's not an, it's not an argument of probability. This is an argument of if these premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. It is deductive. It has to be true. All right, let's stick on life from lifelessness right now because abiogenesis, the argument from abiogenesis that, that you guys are saying uh, is an argument from ignorance. Basically, we don't know how life began. We True. have several theories, thermal vents, uh, clay substrates, RNA world. We've got several theories. We just haven't proven anything yet. But the fact that we don't know how life began doesn't necessitate a creator. Now, if you want to talk about the clam cosmological argument, why don't you set up the, the two premises and then the conclusion for us? Well, before you do that, can I ask a question? Why is it the theist, when something can't be explained, they instantly jump to God instead of, as a scientist would do, start searching around, collecting data, and trying to find the answer? Well, um, you know, I think that a lot of these questions come in kind of a logical order. Um, for instance, does God exist or not is kind of a watershed question. Any way that you're going to approach the issue of how did where did life come from is going to be affected from your prior answer to the question does God exist? Whereas the reverse is not true. You know the the where did life come from uh, doesn't really enter into the issue of does God exist. So I think you know that's just mine. Not that I shy away from the the question. We actually use that in the same way that you say that that uh, you are atheists because there's really no good evidence that God exists, I say we believe life was created because there's no good evidence of that it could have been created on its own. So in, oh, I mean, we're in the same position answer, as though. you are. 
that's not an answer. If you rewind 3,000 years and you say, look, we have lightning, right? We have the fact of lightning, just like right now we have a fact of life. Uh, do you have a good answer for that? No, I don't. I don't know about electromagnetism. We won't figure that out for 3,000 years. Well, if you can't give me an answer, therefore Zeus exists. He's the one throwing down. I have an answer. You don't. The fact is you don't know what causes lightning. You can't infer anything from your lack of knowledge. Well, not only that, not only that, but you take the evidence which a lot of theists put out there, which is the Bible. They say, look at this. This is proof because we have this record of early people. Look at it. It's a proof that people have talked about this. And I look at it and I wonder why, if God did exist, I'm not saying he does, but why if God exists and he is the God of the Bible, why would I ever want to follow this vain person who's just plain mean-spirited? Now, so, Lane, I mean, you're changing the subject. Let's I'm, get back I'm to sorry. The, Let's get back to the subject. Interesting yeah. cosmological argument that they're about to present for us. You know, guys, listen, I, I want to tr- try to get into that, too, and I'm going to address the God of the Gap, okay, which you sort of alluded to uh, earlier. Oh, sure. In that, you know, I, I would say even, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, the God of the Gap was a real problem because people invoked God because they had no rational or scientific explanation or naturalistic explanation. Now, starting in, in 1953, 54, when Watson and Crick came up with the DNA uh, double helical structure and there was the blueprint, blueprint for life, I think that the, the God of the Gap has actually been getting smaller for Christians because as we look into the causes of life and how life forms and the complexity of the intracellular structure and the tubules and RNA, mRNA, DNA, etc., all those things that uh, have to do with cellular life as we know it uh, through electron microscopy and other studies, we see that the gap is getting wider and wider and wider for scientists, not for Christians. Because complexity as, as we is look not through, part of this. Oh, uh, 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 we're losing. Can be, uh, yeah, that's out. Skype. We, if we want to continue this conversation with Charlie not sounding like a robot, we <laughs> need to reset Skype. Okay. All right. But Leighton, you're okay? Oh, yeah. I, we uh, can keep talking with you. Well, anyway. No, let, I got to change the Hey, Charlie, why don't you come in here? You can sit since there's only five more minutes on the show. Why don't you join me in here and I'll just pull the... Uh, the headphones. Right. Well, anyway, listen, Charlie. While I got you um, uh, guys on the phone, especially you, Leighton, when I when I um, computerized my office, um, you know, we obviously have a scheduler, uh, scheduling program. We have a router. We have the internet connections. We do e-prescribing, all that stuff. All the computerized items that were put into the office were designed, and they were also designed by you know the programmers and so forth. And it's a very complex, very intricate uh, thing to put together. Um, okay, but guys, Hume got rid of the design argument about 300 years ago. Uh, we know that computers are designed because we're familiar with people who design them. Yeah, but DNA uh, is designed too, and I think that DNA is the thumbprint of God. There I am invoking God again. But we don't know that DNA was involved because we don't know anyone who designs DNA. We don't have any examples of that. You can't take that analogy from computers and put it to something that we know. We know where DNA comes from. It comes from old DNA or other DNA. Well, and well, all the way back to the first me. cell. If you want to stick a, a god in the first cell, like I said, I think that's an argument from ignorance. And a good analogy of what uh, of what you guys are putting forward is uh, take a person who wins the lottery. Suddenly they're looking at their massive, massive odds that are against them winning the lottery. And therefore, they determine, oops, I never won the lottery in the first place because the odds are against me. This is what you guys are putting forward. And in an evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't make sense because uh, there is quite a bit of step-by-step evolutionary processes that go on. Show me one. Show me one. Well, uh, uh, you, you guys always say there are no beneficial mutations. What about uh, resistance to HIV in a population with a CCR5 gene? How about the uh, beneficial mutation of apolipoprotein uh, in a community in Milan where you can actually look at the original individual who had the mutation that confers resistance to uh, atherosclerosis? Um, I mean, I got more if you want them, but uh, Google beneficial mutation. It'll pop up for you. 
I am writing it down right now. I really wanted to get into the Kalam argument. It's like, to me, this is the strongest uh, argument. What do we got? Four minutes? Three minutes. three minutes. What do you think? Can we do it in three minutes? <laughs> well, it's, it's going to take an entire podcast, but you could give it your shot, and I'll give well, you my quick refutation. At least for the audience, let's tell them that it, the Kalam argument goes like this. Anything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning. We know scientifically. Therefore, the universe has a cause, and that cause we call God. So that's basic. If those premises are true, the structure of the argument is undeniable, the conclusion must be true. What do you think? Correct. Uh, I think the problem is in the premises. You have everything that begins to exist uh, must have a cause. And then now look at the second premise. W what is in the second premise? The universe. Well, the universe isn't a thing. It's a set. It's a collection of everything that exists. So now you're comparing apples and oranges. If you're saying that uh, an apple uh, fell from a tree, all things that fall from trees are apples, an apple falls from a tree, um, you've got a pretty good uh, syllogism. But your syllogism is uh, destroyed by the fact that you're comparing a collection of items in the second premise with an item. The universe cannot be a member of its own set, is what I'm saying. Um, but uh, my question is, um, where did the universe come from, right? Nothing comes from nothing, okay? The universe exists, and it had a beginning. We know this scientifically. Therefore, it had a cause. So, so I'm now, not, I'm not uh, uh, you know, just because the universe is that set of all things, um, it still needs an explanation, well, uh, number one, science says that the universe doesn't need a cause, according to Stephen Hawking. Um, number two, if the uh, you're creating a compositional fallacy, right? Uh, you're saying it would be like uh, all members of an orchestra play together in harmony. And your second premise is all orchestras play together in harmony. I mean, that doesn't make sense. That isn't proven. You're, you're um, conflating two different things. It's okay. tricky because of what you're saying, but you're conflating two different things. But well, it, not only that, but you're the, positing. Uh, they oh, get a, do you guys have to go? Uh, well, when we hear the music. Uh, oh, oh, no. Well, what I was uh, okay. just going to say right there is you guys are positing that the universe had a beginning. Therefore, it was God because we needed somebody to start it. Right, let him, let but, him oh. get the last word. All right, no, that, that's all right. We hope to actually do this for our listeners. We hope to do this again in the future. Uh, guys, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really great to have you on. We love talking to intelligent people about some of the most important questions in life. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Mike Larrakis. And always remember, the best reason for becoming a Christian is because it's true.